Hey, everybody. We've made it to Friday, Friday the 13th. It is, Jan- <laughs> it is January 13th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and some sound effects. <laughs> Clearly, we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, today is the first of two Friday the 13th that we will have this year. The next one comes up in October. Are you a big believer in that stuff? I am because a couple of bad things have happened to me on Friday the 13th. I don't want to get into it, but I'm just I'm just trying to survive. We wish the same for all of you <laughs> as you get through this Friday the 13th. <laughs> okay, now to some headlines here. A special counsel now looking into Biden's classified documents, plus the unexpected place that a new batch of those documents were found. Some new numbers show that inflation is finally starting to slow down. The U.S. cancer rate is way down over the past few decades, except for one kind of cancer. We'll tell you which one and why. Exxon predicted global warming, but then spent years trying to debunk it. Plus, Moshe has on this day, and it is Friday, so we're going to be breaking down what we are watching, reading, and eating. And a special history, Jill, on why we in America buy our eggs in a dozen, while most of the world does not. All right, Mosh, let's get started with the growing Biden classified documents controversy, which has now prompted the attorney general to appoint a special counsel to look into it. Here's what we learned on Thursday. That other batch of classified documents discovered by Biden's aides, well, that was found inside of his Delaware garage in a box near his classic dark green Corvette. And there was also another classified document found inside of the home. Remember, on Monday, we learned that a handful of classified documents dating back to his time as vice president were found in an office at his think tank in D.C. So now we have documents in the three different locations for those keeping track. Fox News reporter Peter Ducey asked Biden about this second discovery Thursday. Here's the exchange. Classified, Classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, But as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. Jill, I can't believe that Biden took the bait there and repeated back the whole Corvette thing, because clearly Peter Ducey, you know, asking him questions and and Biden could have gone to the script. But he's like, yeah, no, I keep my Corvette (laughs) in a secure garage along with the classified documents. Well, you know, we say this all the time, this, oh, you can't make this up. But honestly, you and I were chatting earlier today and you're like, oh, the, you know, we were talking about what stories we were going to do. And you're like, the Corvette, the documents, the Corvette. And I'm like, Wait, what? You know, because at that point I wasn't read in on what was going on in the news. And it's just like, oh, my God, the last thing I thought you were going to say. It's so much to keep track of. I mean, just on yesterday's podcast, we were talking about whether the attorney general was going to appoint a special counsel. Well, we wake up on Thursday and he makes that announcement. Uh, Merrick Garland on Thursday announces the appointment of a special counsel to investigate the handling of the documents now that they've been found at his office in D.C., and two places in his Delaware home. Keep in mind, those documents date back to Biden's time as vice president under President Obama and then clearly made their way with him, however they did, uh, to the various locations. So Garland picked 
a uh, special counsel named Robert Hur to lead the investigation. He's a former U.S. attorney from Maryland. He actually served as an official in the Trump administration. Uh, and so they always are looking at the optics when they pick special counsels. But let's go through the timeline because I know this is quickly developing. So this is what we know uh, as of Friday until we learn some more stuff. On November 4th, just a week before midterms, the National Archives Inspector General contacted the Justice Department to say the White House notified them they found documents at the Penn Biden Center, the private office in D.C. he was using. That's November 4th. November 9th, the FBI begins an investigation, assigns a U.S. attorney. December 20th, President Biden's personal counsel then informs that U.S. attorney that they found additional documents bearing classified markings in his garage next to that Corvette in his Delaware home. So the FBI then goes to that location, secures his documents, brings them back. That then brings us to 2023, to this month, last Thursday, January 5th, the U.S. attorney informs the attorney general, listen, there's a lot here. I think you should appoint a special counsel. That has then led the DOJ to spend a couple days. They find Robert Hur. Uh, on Monday this week, it breaks to the world, right, that some of these documents were found. That then leads us to yesterday. All of us learning that there were multiple locations and the attorney general appointing the special counsel publicly. So this certainly ups the ante in terms of legal stakes and potential consequences. And as the Washington Post puts it, it also means that for some indefinite period of time, the two potential rivals for the White House, for the presidency next year, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, will each have to proceed under the shadow of special counsel criminal investigations. Remember, President Trump uh, has a special counsel named Jack Smith, who's overseeing the criminal probes into him in both his classified documents investigation as well as January 6th. Just from an optics perspective, given that White House aides had discovered the classified documents at those different locations already, I don't understand why whomever leaked this or told this to NBC News didn't tell them about both locations from the beginning because it just extended the timeline of this story. Keep in mind also the White House wants to steer clear of any indication they're trying to manipulate the investigation. You know, Justice Department uh, and investigators don't take kindly to White House leaks. It looks like they're trying to manipulate things. So I think it's a very slippery slope for them. And keep in mind that first leak on Monday might not have come from the White House. It might have come from someone in the Justice Department. So it's, you know, as these things grow, as more people get involved, more people find out, it's more likely that one of them may call a reporter. Okay, so the reaction has come fast and furious from both sides of the aisle. Trump wrote on Truth Social, Merrick Garland has to immediately end special counsel investigation into anything related to me, himself, because I did everything right and appoint a special counsel to investigate Joe Biden, who hates Biden as much as Jack Smith hates me. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Whatever that means. I like I it's so interesting because this is clearly good for Trump, but it's so interesting to hear how he reacts to this. Cause it's like, all right, so basically his lesson from all this is like the investigation into him needs to stop and it just needs to go into Biden. You're like, I don't know that that's necessarily the lesson here, Mr. President, but Sure. So and, who's it, and whoever is investigating him needs to hate him. That's the other needs lesson. to hate him. Yeah, he's decided that Jack Smith, the special counsel investigating him, hates him. He's just he's decided and he repeats it all the time. The other lesson is don't put classified documents next to a Corvette. It's just bad optics. <laughs> 
world. You know what's so interesting, Jill, is like, is in many cases, the presidents themselves are not doing the packing. Clearly, there's a packing issue. Whoever's packing their documents is like, you know, Hillary's uh, classified documents show up on her email server. Trump has documents left and right in Mar-a-Lago, right? Several hundred of them. In this case, Biden has some hanging out at his office in D.C. in the garage next to the Corvette. He's got one in the office now. Like, what's going on? Moshe, I think that this goes back, though, to the point that you made on the podcast either yesterday or the day before, which is, you know, why is it that all of these politicians are getting into trouble with classified documents? Perhaps it's because there's an issue with classified documents. Perhaps there's just too too many documents are being labeled as classified that don't actually have to be. Though at the same time, rules are rules. And I've heard from a number of government employees or contractors, Jill, who have security clearances, who are like, I would be in jail and lose my job if a single classified document left with me for like five minutes by accident in my briefcase. That is like, they put the fear of God into these people. That is so interesting. And so they feel like they you go through trainings and there's multiple levels of clearance uh, from like, top secret to, you know, compartmentalized secret. And again, like if you walk out the room with it, if you, you know, you can't even have in some of these cases with these classified decks, you can't bring your phone to the room so you can't take a picture of stuff. And so they just feel like there's a double standard here. And so I think you need some more kind of OCD type A's um, doing <laughs> doing the packing in the White House. Uh, as for Garland, he did talk to some reporters today outside of the Justice Department. He reiterated this timeline. He said on January 5th, that first prosecutor that he assigned to review the matter recommended that a special counsel take up the case. Uh, by the way, a special counsel does answer to the Justice Department but they have a little bit more independence than other federal prosecutors. We should also note that uh, per Justice Department policy, a sitting president cannot actually be charged with a crime. Uh, Biden's lawyer says they are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced and that the president and his lawyers acted promptly upon discovery of this mistake. Yeah, that's one distinction the Biden White House is trying to make here is that in comparing Trump and Biden is that Trump fought the archives for more than a year, uh, you know, despite multiple visits to Mar-a-Lago, you know, fought giving back a lot of documents, which is what led to the FBI search warrant. So that's the distinction they're trying to make here is that they've been cooperating this entire time. Either way, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, finds himself in a very tough spot. Because remember, Merrick Garland was nominated by President Obama in 2016 to serve on the Supreme Court for an open seat. Mitch McConnell at the time would not give him a hearing. He basically just had to sit out for 10 months until the election. And then finally, Biden becomes president four years later. He's given this role as attorney general. And now he's overseeing all these special counsel investigations. I imagine he bad wishes he was sitting on the Supreme Court right now with a lifetime appointment and less of this nonsense. And when I mentioned special counsels, Jill, there's actually three of them right now. And this is pretty rare. So there's Robert Hur, the new one, investigating Biden. Then there's Jack Smith investigating Trump's classified documents and January 6th. And then you have a third one. This is the investigation into the investigation. This is John Durham. <laughs> coffee table book about the coffee table. Got it. Exactly. The investigation investigating the investigators. So John Durham, this was a push by Trump, eventually um, appointed during his administration. He's still going right now. He's investigating those Trump investigations, those Russia investigations. So Robert Hur on Biden, Jack Smith on Trump, and John Durham investigating the investigators. And so that ultimately is like your mix of three separate social counsel investigations. As you mentioned, they work independently, but ultimately they send the reports, Jill, to who else? Merrick Garland, the attorney general, who then makes decisions on prosecution. So that's leading everyone to talk 2024 here. So Trump, 
versus Biden. They each have a special counsel. I'm hearing across the spectrum on Instagram, including from Democrats, Jill, who are like, does this mean we don't have to vote for Biden? Does this mean he won't run now? And then people are going like deep into conspiracy being like, this was, you know, this was dropped by other Democrats to ensure Biden, you know, won't run as he's making his decision. Um, either way, you've had Clinton under investigation in 2016, Trump with his impeachment investigation, Biden, like, I don't know when we'll have a year where we might have presidential candidates who are not under investigation as they run for president. Maybe this gives them both an out, Trump and Biden. Biden, perhaps. Trump, <laughs> you, read that, you read that post, Jill. Okay, now on to what President Biden hoped to be talking about on Thursday, a new government report which showed that inflation eased again in December. Consumer prices had their biggest monthly decline since uh, early in the pandemic, falling 0.1% for the month. That was about in line with expectations. But even with that slight drop, the CPI or that price of most goods and services, it was still up 6.5% from a year ago. A big drop in gas prices helped to bring that monthly number down. The national average, according to AAA, is three twenty-seven a gallon. Back in June, that hit a record high of $5 a gallon. That is very real money for people uh, when you talk about savings. Uh, we did talk about this yesterday, though. Food prices still insanely high. They increased another 0.3% in December. The price of eggs, way up. Medical care services increased as well after dropping for two straight months. And airline fares fell about 3% for the month, although they are still up about 28.5% from a year prior. That month-over-month drop, though, from November to December, even though you know it looks insignificant, 0.1%, is the largest month-over-month drop uh, since April 2020. So almost going back three years. Now, the big question is, what does this all mean for the Fed when it comes to interest rates? Remember, inflation now down to 6.5, still way above the Fed's 2% target. That's where they typically like it. So Mark Zandi, he's a chief economist. You might see him on the news a lot. He's over at Moody's. He was quoted as saying, inflation is quickly moderating. I see nothing but good news in the report, except for that top line number, 6.5%, still way too high. And so the Fed will be meeting in just about two weeks. Will they be making their next decision on interest rates? Right now, their benchmark rate is just over 4%. That's its highest level in 15 years. The officials have indicated that the rate will likely exceed 5% before they can step back to see the impact of the policy tightening. So um, again, these sort of, uh, what do they like to call them? Green shoots on the economy, Jill, kind of popping through. 6.5% still high year over year. Egg prices, other stuff still crazy. Uh, but again, another indication the economy and inflation is slowly starting to moderate. I did listen to a, an in-depth interview with Mark Zandi. He spoke to Scott Galloway on his podcast, and he said that he thought that all the talk of recession was so overblown. Uh, and he said he really he just doesn't see the U.S. going into a recession anytime soon. It's so interesting because like last year we were like in a technical recession for like a hot second, but then the revised numbers came back and it looked like we weren't in a recession, but all the rest of the numbers don't show recession. But then all the banks in the year were like guaranteed recession 2023 and the market reacted to that. I mean, I think if anything, this shows that if we hit a recession, hopefully it won't be a, you know, a, a terribly significant one. But then again, Jill, you know, as we've been doing this podcast every day and reporting out the news. The economists only know what they know until they don't know what they know and they're surprised by things. So we'll just, you know, keep you up to date as we keep hearing the latest data. 
All right, we have a lot more news to get to, including today's speed read. But first, I want to thank a couple of our podcast sponsors this week. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day, uh, Athletic Greens. Their AG1 all-in-one vitamin is a must as we try to get through this cold and flu season. I've been using Athletic Greens AG1 powder for a couple months now. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's that simple. The experience is uh, affordable. And I've been getting that extra boost of energy, especially when I used to lag midday. The AG1 powder contains more than 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support your gut health. And here is the best news with your first purchase of AG1. Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can get that all at athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal to really start to take ownership of your health. And there's one more great deal I want to tell Mo News listeners about. This comes to us from our friends at Bolin Branch Bedding and Sheets. We've been talking a lot about them on this podcast. Uh, I hope that everyone has been getting a good night's sleep as we begin this new year. But let's talk briefly about what can help you with that. Great sheets. My wife and I got our first set of Bolin Branch in the fall. They're keeping us warm during these winter months. They're made with the softest 100% organic cotton, no toxins. They get softer with every wash. We are awaiting our second set. They actually come in all sizes, 10 different colors, and they are extending a special deal for Mo News listeners. You can get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code MoNews over at bowlinbranch.com. Also, free shipping and returns. That is Bowl and Branch, B O L L A N D, branch.com. Promo code MoNews. Okay, time now for the speed read. This from the Wall Street Journal. The cancer mortality rate in the U.S. has dropped by a third in the past three decades, a report shows. But an increase in advanced prostate cancer diagnoses threatens to reverse some of those hard-won gains. The American Cancer Society said changes in preventative measures and screening in the past decade drove important trends in U.S. cancer incidents and outcomes. Cervical cancer rates dropped 65% from 2012 to 2019 among women in their early 20s after a generation of young women were vaccinated against HPV for the first time. Cancer is still the second leading cause of death in the U.S. behind heart disease. Nearly 2 million cases and some 610,000 deaths estimated to occur in 2023. A decline in the smoking rate in the U.S., better early detection and innovative treatments, including immunotherapy drugs, have driven a drop in death rates since 1991, according to the report, averting an estimated 3.8 million cancer deaths during that time. And there are high hopes for the uh, cancer vaccine development, uh, the mRNA vaccine. So hopefully there'll be good news on that front and they'll continue to bring those numbers down. As far as the rise in prostate cancer, Jill, a decline in the use of the controversial test for prostate cancer likely led to more men getting diagnosed at later stages, according to the report. The highest incidence, incidentally, uh, mortality among black men. Black men had a 70% higher incidence of prostate cancer than white men. Death rates from prostate cancer were two to four times higher in the black community than every other racial and ethnic group. The American Cancer Society CEO was quoted as saying, "There's a, this is a significant call to arms. We're not catching these cancers early when we have an opportunity to cure men of prostate cancer. Uh, it, it is very difficult, especially when uh, that cancer, the prostate cancer gets to late stages to be able to treat it. As far as this test is concerned, it's called the PSA test. And it was deployed widely when it was first introduced uh, back in the early 90s. Uh, and then there were questions about 
how practical it was, and whether it was leading to unnecessary biopsies and treatments that could actually cause harm, which is then one led to some recommendations against the test. But the feeling, at least it appears based on this research, is uh, that the test is, does more good than harm, especially in terms of early detection. Also on the health front, from USA Today, childhood vaccination rates drop as measles and polio outbreaks emerge. Immunization rates for measles, polio, and other diseases once again dropping among kindergartners last year, a trend public health officials warn puts kids at risk for vaccine-preventable diseases. The coverage dropped nearly 1% from 2020 to 2021 and about 2% from the year before the COVID-19 pandemic started. According to the CDC, the study did not track the number of kids who received COVID-19 vaccines or boosters. Public health officials said the report showed school-age vaccination rates worsened during the pandemic as families missed doctor's visits and school routines were disrupted. But another CDC study also released yesterday reported vaccination rates among two-year-olds were similar to pre-pandemic levels. Levels. Experts said that uh, all the debate and some of the misinformation around the COVID vaccine might have influenced parents' decisions here. And you might see that some uh, diseases that we thought were in the rearview mirror have kind of popped back up. You saw the polio uh, reports in New York last year, as well as measles surges in Minnesota and Ohio. From USA Today, developers trying to build hundreds of thousands of homes in Arizona. A new report warns there isn't enough water. Amid a mega drought depleting groundwater across the West, a newly released report from Arizona signals difficulty ahead for developers wishing to build hundreds of thousands of homes in the desert west of Phoenix. The report shows that plans to add those homes to more than 800,000 people will require other water sources if they're to go forward. The governor saying, we must talk about the challenge of our time. Arizona's decades-long drought, overusage of the Colorado River, and the combined ramifications on our water supply, our forests, and our communities. This is a story that is not going away, um, especially as we've been seeing this mega drought going back 20 years. It worsened last year, making 2021 the driest in 1,200 years according to a study from the journal Nature Climate Change. As a result of the expanding drought, Western states, Arizona, Nevada, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, California, are all struggling with a water shortage due to lakes and rivers drying up. Uh, in addition to communities pumping more groundwater and depleting aquifers at an alarming rate. It's interesting, Jill, as you talk about the expansion of homes, there's also, you know, like they grow cotton in Arizona. Cotton is one of the crops that requires the most amount of water. And so there needs to be sort of a, a come to moment here that things cannot continue at their current pace and you can't keep doing what you're doing given the water shortages here. And so the new homes will need new water sources. And the question is, is what will they be? The reason that I wanted to include this story today is because we often talk about climate change and you know immediate impacts. But one of the things that I find fascinating is, will there be a change in the way that people live and where people live? You know, you see so many people moving to Miami and to the coasts. Those areas could be underwater soon. Some of the most open land in this country is out west in Arizona and places like that. Mm -hmm. But we have this issue now with water. So is climate change going to have a major impact on, on, again, where we all are living in 50 years? 
Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, you you look decades out, and I think we did this on the podcast in the fall, and there were reports being like, what's the best place for climate change? Like, what's your safest place? And they say it's like the Great Lakes region, like the, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, in terms of just like that, you know, relatively they, as they prognosticate out, as they project out, that that's the place where we continue to have fresh water sources and won't be getting too hot, et cetera. But this is a discussion we're going to watch, you know, especially as we speak to like a lot of uh, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Zers, like as we look the next 40, 50, 60 years, this is going to become a, uh, a big conversation. Jill, just sticking with the West and water here for a moment, I want to update everyone on what's going on in California. Uh, Monterey Peninsula residents could soon be living on effectively on an island as the flooding threatens to cut them off from the rest of California. So when we talk about Monterey Peninsula, we're talking about Monterey, Carmel, Pacific Grove. The state has been hammered by a cascade of atmospheric rivers, you know, which are those long, narrow regions of atmosphere that can carry moisture thousands of miles. And California is getting pummeled right now. At least 18 people have died. Neighborhoods have turned into lakes. Countless homes have been destroyed as these string of storms have toppled trees, paralyzed communities. So there's more rain today and tomorrow as another river comes ashore. The good news here, if we can say there's any good news, is it has started to pull the state out of extreme drought conditions. That's the nearly the worst level of drought. It is now California, now mostly in a severe drought, not an extreme drought. The issue is, even with all this rain, the earth has a difficult time absorbing water. I mean, when you look at really, really dry drought soil, it's like cement. The soil just doesn't take in the water. And so that's one of the challenges here. Why a lot of this water is getting runoff, either way, um, California in just over two weeks has received 50 to 70% of the precipitation it would normally get in a whole year in just about two weeks. So um, some positive effects in terms of drought in California for now. Back to just what we were talking about in regard to climate change, changing where people live and how they live. California, one of the biggest draws to living there is the weather. Just this beautiful weather all the time, You a healthier lifestyle. Now we're seeing crazy weather like this, crazy flooding that's happening, as Ellen pointed out, you know, every five years. Um, and in addition, all these horrible fires, you, you know, we get these once a century fires that are now happening every single fire season. You used to suck up the traffic, the smog and the taxes in California for the weather. And that's not so much the case lately. Okay, and speaking of the climate, this from The Guardian revealed Exxon made breathtakingly accurate climate predictions in the 1970s and 80s. They knew it. A study finds that Exxon privately predicted global warming correctly and skillfully, only to then spend decades publicly rubbishing such science in order to protect its core business. A study in the journal Science finds that Exxon scientists were uncannily accurate in their projections from the 1970s onwards, predicting an upward curve of global temperatures and carbon dioxide emissions. They are very close to matching what actually occurred as the world heated up at a pace not seen in millions of years. A trove of internal documents and research papers has previously established that Exxon knew of the dangers of climate change from at least the 70s, with other oil industry bodies knowing of the risk even earlier, from around the 1950s. This was during the same time that the oil giant publicly doubted that warming was real and dismissed climate models' accuracy. Exxon claims its understanding of climate change evolved over the years and that critics are misunderstanding its earlier research. Jill, a few thoughts here. I always love getting a couple clips uh, into speed read from uh, British newspapers like The Guardian, just so we can uh, say words like rubbishing the science. 
Very cheeky. Back to the research, though, uh, Jill, the journal analyzed uh, more than 100 internal documents and peer-reviewed scientific publications, either produced in-house by Exxon scientists and managers or co-authored by Exxon scientists back in its independent publications back between 1977 and 2014. And it's so interesting that Exxon is saying that, you know, we're misunderstanding their earlier research because it's it's pretty straightforward. They clearly knew what they were doing. And this goes, this falls in line with other oil companies knowing exactly what they're doing. And actually it's kind of interesting because there's a parallel to the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies, you know, having their own research and knowing what's going on and being like, oof, we can't really tell the public about that. So Exxon has been spending years, decades trying to downplay or discredit what its own scientists were finding. Back in 2013, Rex Tillerson, he was the CEO of Exxon at the time, he said that their own climate models were not competent and there are uncertainties over the impact of burning fossil fuels. And now clearly these documents are going public at this point. And if you're wondering where you have heard the name Rex Tillerson, he was Secretary of State under President Trump. For a very brief moment. For a brief moment, but (laughs) it was a moment. And this from Forbes, J.P. Morgan says a startup founder used millions of fake customers to dupe it into an acquisition. J.P. Morgan Chase is now suing the leaders of Frank, a financial aid business that it bought for $175 million back in 2021. The bank alleges that the 30-year-old founder, Charlie Javis, and a partner duped the bank by making up millions of fake student accounts to show that it had a growing business. The bank filed a lawsuit late last month in a Delaware federal court against Javis and the chief growth officer, Olivier Amar, alleging widespread fraud at a company that is marketed as helping families navigate the complex college financial aid process. Frank offered a tool they said would simplify federal financial aid forms as well as listing of scholarships and low-cost college courses. Javis approached J.P. Morgan in the summer of 2021 about a potential acquisition, according to the lawsuit. She claimed Frank had 4.25 million users. The company had fewer than 300,000 real users, according to the lawsuit, which is less than 10% of what they claimed. Literally, Jill, 4 million fake accounts uh, out of just over 4.2 million. It's remarkable here, and there are a lot of questions, including where was the due diligence of J.P. Morgan? They're just dropping a check for $175 million uh, to this uh, young uh, startup. She was in her 20s at the time. So there's Javis and then Amar, who was the chief growth officer. They were allegedly paid between them $26 million as part of that acquisition and given roles at J.P. Morgan. And the details are compelling here in the suit. It alleges that Javis and Amar first asked the top engineer at Frank to create a fake customer list. That engineer refused, was like, I'm not doing this. So then Javis approached uh, what they say is a data science professor over at, at a New York City area college for help. And using data from some individuals, they created 4.2 million fake customer accounts for which Javis paid 18 grand. So she basically paid 18 grand to create these accounts and then was able to sell the company for $175 million. So that's the claim from JP Morgan. What is she saying? And it's interesting, Jill, because she has an attorney who represented Elon Musk in his whole Twitter battle. So she's definitely armed up legally here. The same week that JP Morgan filed its suit against Javis, Javis filed a suit against JP Morgan. She claims that the bank last spring commenced a series of groundless investigations into her conduct and later manufactured a four-cause termination in bad faith, uh, basically eliminating her opportunity to get another 10 plus million dollars. Um, so It'll be interesting to see what comes out here. J.B. Morgan says that's nonsense. Uh, You 
basically sold as a fraudulent company. Uh, incidentally, she was named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list several years ago. And so Morning Brew and some others have been having fun here being like, okay, between SBF, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, Charlie Javis, beware of the Forbes 30 under 30s before you acquire their companies. I think that they should do a 40 over 40. Because give us a chance, Mosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's an argument. I think there's an argument there. You hear it from uh, people like Gary Vaynerchuk all the time being like, you know, just because you didn't make your first million in your 20s or start the next big company in your 30s, you see these lists often go out where like, you know, this person at 60, you know, created a great company or at 75, you know, life is long. And so don't feel bad. And now especially... Now you can have a little schadenfreude at the people who uh, who actually make it on those lists. I think Julia Child did not start cooking. I, I don't think she even learned how to cook until she was in her 30s. She didn't get her show until she was in her 40s. Nancy Pelosi is another one. She didn't first run for office until she was 47. And, and look at her. She became Speaker of the House. Uh, so... Life does not end at 30 or 40. Ray Kroc uh, founded McDonald's in his 50s, and Gandhi didn't receive international recognition uh, until he took his walk in his 60s. So um, everyone, we're telling you, there's a chance. And Mosh, now to a sad story from People magazine. Lisa Marie Presley, the singer-songwriter and daughter of Elvis and Priscilla Presley, has died at the age of 54 it is with a heavy heart that I must share the devastating news that my beautiful daughter, Lisa Marie, has left us, Priscilla confirmed in a statement to People on Thursday evening. She was the most passionate, strong, and loving woman I've ever known. We ask for privacy as we try to deal with this profound loss. Thank you for the love and prayers. At this time, there will be no further comment. EMTs responded to the singer's home in Calabasas, California, on Thursday for a possible cardiac arrest. Born in Memphis, Tennessee on February 1st, 1968, exactly nine months after Elvis and Priscilla's wedding, Lisa Marie was briefly raised in the area before moving to Los Angeles at the age of four with her mother, following her parents' 1973 divorce. It's really such tragic news, Jill. Presley attended the Golden Globes just on Tuesday night this week. She was on hand to celebrate Austin Butler's award for playing her father in the movie Elvis. She called his performance mind-blowing during a red carpet interview with Entertainment Tonight. And just days before that, she was back in Memphis, Tennessee at Graceland. That's the mansion where Elvis lived uh, to celebrate her father's birth anniversary back on January 8th. Elvis died back in August of 77 when Lisa Marie was just nine years old. She eventually inherited the entire estate. She actually went on to pursue her own music career as an adult. She was also married four times, including to Michael Jackson and then later Nicolas Cage. And she leaves behind three children. And Jill, our final speed read comes to us from the New York Times. More than 7,000 nurses at two New York City hospitals ended a three-day strike and returned to work on Thursday after they resolved what they said was a major sticking point in negotiations, too few nurses. The tentative contract deal the nurses reached with Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan and Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx would also increase their pay by nearly 20%. But many nurses on the picket line this week said their main priority was improving working conditions. What they were looking for was adding nurses to short-staffed hospital floors where they said crowded conditions have put patients at risk and led to stress and burnout among the staff. The union had stressed staffing as a key concern, saying that nurses who labored through the grueling peak of the pandemic are stretched far too thin because too many jobs are open. Nurses say they've had to work overtime, handle twice as many patients as they should, and skip meals and even bathroom breaks. 
All right, Jill, I have our On This Day on this January 13th. Uh, begin by saying happy 95th birthday to TV. On January 13th, 1928, GE and the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, held their first successful public demonstration of television sets in Schenectady, New York. Happy birthday to my television set. You gave me a career being an anchor on TV. Um, and you've also helped me waste, I don't know, countless, countless hours and keeping me up late at night, but also keeping me company when I can't sleep. So thank you and happy birthday. Hope it's a good one. Hope it's a good one. Uh, though, you know, you fall on some hard times lately. I'm giving much more of my love to my iPhone than you. Okay, a little bit of pop culture news. 1968, on this day, 55 years ago, American singer and songwriter Johnny Cash recorded the album Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison in front of an audience of some 2,000 inmates at the California Folsom Prison, a classic, classic, iconic album. Staying with music here, 61 years ago today, January 13th, 1962, The Twist by Chubby Checker reached number one on the Billboard charts. And one more piece of music news. 33 years ago today, MC Hammer released his classic, You Can't Touch This. All right, let's stick with the uh, TV theme here and head into watching, reading, and eating. Jill, what are you watching this weekend? So season two of The Hunters comes out this weekend on Amazon Prime. It has been about three years since the first season, so I'm definitely going to need a little refresher. Um, I don't even remember watching it, actually. My husband's like, we watched it. We watched it together. Um, anyway, it's an, basically an alternate history drama series. It follows a Holocaust survivor who leads a team to hunt down Nazis hiding in America in the 1970s. Everything I'm about. All right. Let, let me know. Let me know how that is. I'm going to be uh, checking out Kaleidoscope. I keep hearing about this. This is one of the most trending shows in the world over on Netflix. It's a heist show. And what's interesting is the viewing experience that Netflix has offered here, as opposed to having like a traditional episodes one through whatever, they've assigned the episodes colors. And every single account on the streaming service has gotten a different order. So there's like episode blue, episode white, episode purple. And so there are thousands of ways, literally in orders, you can watch the show, Kaleidoscope. Uh, and I've been reading up on like, well, which one do they recommend? Uh, and so it's so interesting that Netflix has taken this approach. I think it's really, really notable. Hmm. I'm kind of confused, Mosh. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, it's, it's so interesting that they've scripted this in a way where you can somehow watch them in this randomized order. And that's probably one of the reasons why I keep seeing it trending in the top 10 most watched shows on my Netflix. Okay, what are you reading? So uh, I think we both have uh, articles from The Atlantic this weekend. Uh, Which is I'm kind of lame. Through. I feel like we need to expand our <laughs> we need repertoire to diversify. here. Yes. We do need to diversify. Uh, and we did this without any coordination, I promise all of you. So uh, Atlantic, my Atlantic piece, has a piece on Buy Now, Pay Later, that the bubble is about to burst. This is big among Gen Z. Uh, right now, the people using Buy Now, Pay Later, BNPL loans to like literally buy anything from meals two major items has grown more than a thousand percent in the last two years from $2 billion to 24 billion. So uh, I want to get smart on the whole BNPL thing. Okay. My piece from the Atlantic is called the new case for social climbing. Meritocracy is make believe. It's all about who, you know, uh, I just love the premise of this and it caught my eye and I, I have bookmarked it to read this weekend. Especially as everyone talks about Nepo babies. Exactly. All right, what are you eating, Mosh? 
So eggs has been the theme of the week, Jill. Uh, and despite the cost, uh, love a good egg. Uh, Alex, my wife, has perfected the jammy egg recipe. You can check it all out on her Instagram account at A-L-S-A-L-L. Uh, and she wants me to remind everyone that research shows that pasture-raised eggs are better for you and have more vitamins. Okay. Thank you, Alex. That's definitely a good reminder. Um, I mean it. I have been making mini frittatas and I feel like I'm channeling my inner Alex right now. So I'm going to briefly explain how, how I make them. I take a muffin pan. I put tons of chopped veggies in and a teeny bit of cheese in each one. And then I put the eggs on top of it. You fill it about three quarters of the way, cook on 350 degrees for about 23 minutes. And voila, you've got mini frittatas and you could store them in your fridge, even your freezer, and then heat them up in like 25 seconds in the microwave. Jill, I know we were talking about uh, potentially having plans this weekend since you're out in Long Island. We're <laughs> we're in the city. If I I don't know if if the reheat if the reheat works, uh, definitely uh, I'd like to order up one of those frittatas. You got it, Mosh. Before we go, I wanted you to talk about this on the podcast. You posted something about this on Instagram that I thought was so interesting about why in the U.S. we buy eggs by the dozen. It's so interesting, Jill, because we take things for granted. We're like, well, you know, we buy a dozen eggs, so like the rest of the world like buys their eggs in a dozen. The rest of the world, like many things, is like, nope, actually, you guys in America do stuff differently. So I was like digging in and being, you know, as we were talking about eggs this week and egg prices, and then people were sending me messages being like, 10 eggs in Japan cost this much. And somebody's like, three eggs in France cost this much. And I was like, whoa, you don't buy your eggs in dozens? And people are like, no, why do you guys buy your eggs in dozens in America? So I Googled around. And it goes back 2,000 years to the Roman times uh, when they eventually took over the area now known as England. So you have the Anglo-Saxon units of measurement, and eggs could be sold for a penny a piece, and a shilling was 12 pennies. And so it just made sense to sell eggs in a dozen because eggs you know, were literally each penny, and then you could pay a shilling for your 12 eggs. Anyway, that concept comes over to the States with um, the colonists from the UK, and so they brought that concept over here. Eventually in Europe and most of the world, they've gone to selling your eggs in 10, in some cases in Japan and other places I've heard three and six, some places 30. Anyway, we're still doing the dozen here in America. And it literally goes back to the Roman times. And at this rate, um, we're going to need to win the lottery in order to pay for eggs, right? Jill, good segue. You'll have your chance tonight. <laughs> Mega Millions. Mega Millions has reached $1.35 billion. It probably will pop to $1.4 by the time everyone buys tickets. It's the fourth largest jackpot in the U.S., 45 states you're eligible to play in. Tickets cost two bucks a pop. So if you wanted to buy a dozen tickets, 24 bucks. If we're working in dozens here. <laughs> All right. On that note, a big thank you to listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us over on Instagram uh, at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H uh, for all things Mo News 24-7. And uh, we will see everyone back here next week. Have a good weekend. 